And welcome to The Whole Truth from the Bay Area, California. I am Steve Side. And from Atlanta, Georgia, I'm Kurt Dupuy. How you doing, my friend? I'm doing well. I'm New excited year. about this one. 2021. You're excited about the episode and the year or the year? Most of the episode. I'm, I mean, we're still looking down the barrel of a, of a challenging 21, but you know, I'm, I'm trying to be optimistic about it. I feel good about 21. I think it's going to be a big year. I think, I think the economy is going to come roaring back. This is going to be a fun episode. So what we have Ben Algae on, uh, which is going to do our behavioral finance uh, second edition, which Kurt is, will- Is he our first recurring guest now? He is. Welcome yeah. back, Ben. Uh, which I, I think in the first time we had Ben on, we talked about, hey, get used to Ben. And you should, because yeah. Ben's great. He's a force. He's a power. He did a great job. And he's side 2.0. So I, I always love that oh, aspect Jesus. too. I, I don't know how to ever <laughs> respond to that. Uh, I guess it depends on if 2.0 is the better version, you know? Inconclusive. Inconclusive. Okay. So we're going to do that. I also want to get into a study that we did with our community. Thank you to everyone who participated. We're going to do a lot of this type of work where we want to get insights from you all. Yeah, it was fun too. Yeah. We we, we just came up with, with a series of questions that we asked about the, the pandemic. Uh, this was driven by someone in our community. It's like, hey, I want to hear what my peers are doing. So let's, let's survey. We're not in the same office. We can't sit around the water cooler and talk about what we're doing. So I, I think it was really helpful that we're, we're filling a gap that people weren't able to do naturally. I'm going to throw some questions at Kurt to see if he can guess oh, some Lordy. of the responses. The four questions that we asked were this, what have you done during this time that has worked well, reflecting on, on this work at home environment? What hasn't worked well? What would you do differently? And will your business change when things normalize? We ask those four questions and let people give us answers. Okay, so you ready for me to throw some questions your way, Kurt? I got my batting gloves on. Uh, throw throw some pitches. Let's go. There was an overwhelming response to this question, and I'm wondering if you can guess what it was. Were teams overall, the teams that we that we asked, were they happy with the year? Did they feel good about 2020 in terms of from a business perspective? Ooh. I think I'm going to say no. I, I think people were faced with a lot of challenges, and I think there were certain teams, high-performing teams, continue to be high-performing. But I think there might have been some that this was a really big shock to them. It took them a while to get their sea legs under them in a pandemic world. Is that right? So it could be that the people that listen to this podcast in our community just happen to be high-level people. But the answer was actually yes. The bulk of people that responded to the survey said, hey, it was a challenge, but a lot of really good things happened this year. Hmm. We'll get into the specifics, but I think overall people felt like, like, like kind of we do, we, we're a little bit blessed. It was such a challenging yeah. year overall. And if we look at how we did amidst that, um, we feel pretty good about how the year went. So I'll give you a, a multiple choice question. Did 25% of the respondents talk about proactive client outreach as being a key part of why the year was good? Did 50% say that or did 75% say that? It's definitely over 50%. I just don't know if it's 75. I'm going to go 75 though. You are correct. So yeah. you're one for two. Came up a lot. Um, when this thing happened, we mobilized. We we really got a plan for reaching out to our clients. And that worked really, really well. I, I, you also, you got the sense that, hey, we've we've been at this party before, like 08, 09 is still yeah. sort of fresh in everyone's mind. So it probably was easier this time, even though the- Because it was so quick, the down and the up were so quick. Yeah. But also people realized like, hey, you know, after 09 and 08 and 09 happened and the, they saw what happened with the market, some of them even said like, oh, our clients were ready for this. Is it time to put- hmm you know, money to work. That's not to say people didn't struggle, you know, people, especially when, you know, everything was shutting down, there was panic, but I do feel like some of the clients felt like, yeah, you know, I've seen this game before and it's, it's an opportunity to make some money. Well, then my, my question is then if that was such a rewarding experience this year in a, in a year of plenty, not rewarding experiences, what, what do you take in 2021 and, and going, going forward, right? We, we, hammer almost ad nauseum service, 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 service. Yeah. You know, <laughs> maybe there's something to that. Maybe talking to I your know. clients a lot, there, there's something to that and over communicating and thinking of creative ways to do that. Maybe there's something to all that. Turns out I agree with you, Kurt. Turns <laughs> out I agree with you. Yeah. Shocker. And truthfully uh, of the 25%, there was a lot of, listen, our book had too many households as it was. Mm. We didn't really have this locked in. So um, I think you're exactly right. 
people generally felt good about technology, but it also exposed some of the weaknesses of technology. Like that makes sense. There were there were some bad Zoom calls where people just said this didn't work that well in these situations. We know when things go back to normal that the use of technology is going to be a more integral part of what people do. They probably will use Zoom, but they also realize like there's a point where technology just doesn't. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Well, and I, one of the challenges that I, that I faced is Zooms replacing just a phone call. Like, do we have to schedule a Zoom like with cameras on? Like, it, we're just talking. Can we just talk on the phone? But That's um, right. you know, some people text things that should be emails because they're like four pages long. It's like, just send me an email. I don't need a four-page text. So just you know, knowing the message and then making it appropriate, the, the technology application appropriate. Um, I think we all learned a lot of lessons with that in 2020. All right, Kurt. So I'm going to give you a multiple choice. All of these three answers came up as potential challenges, but out of these three, what was the biggest challenge, the one that come came up most often. The first one is personal productivity. The second was managing team members. The third was the investment environment and, and navigating through. Two, managing team members. You got that easy. How did you know that? I mean, I've, I've got the results of the study, but also that- So you cheated is sense. what you're saying. Yeah. When we do these studies, one of the things I want to take away is like, what can we work on on behalf of the community? And that's one of them. I think I think we need to dig into, you know, how to manage team members remotely because it's not that this will be the norm forever, I pray, but you know, there's going to be more of this. So can we do something to help people because people really struggled with that. That's interesting. Because I think mine might have been the first one, personal productivity. And like when you you sit in your office and you can focus on everything, what do you hone in and focus on? Especially when there's virtual schooling and kids in the background and whatever. Um, that was probably my biggest challenge. So let me ask you a personal question through the pandemic. Did you find yourself uh, exercising more and eating better or the opposite? Opposite. Um, you were in that camp. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I've, but if it comes in fits and starts. I mean, I'm currently on a you know multi week away from the gym uh, trend, but I, I had some good weeks in there as well. But I'm also less careful about what I eat and drink. So I exercise a whole lot more during it because you know I didn't have to do those commutes. Like as a wholesaler, when you get in the car and you drive someplace and you spend all day, and then you got to drive home and you get in at whatever time you get in to then start have to go working out is like the hardest thing for me to do. Like to get myself out the door at six p.m. after a long day is is hard. Whereas you know I I felt that um, you know. I didn't have to do the commutes and so I could spend an hour exercising. So I I so I was surprised then that a lot of I won't say a lot, maybe 25, 30% of respondents were like you, where they're just like, I just ate everything in sight and didn't exercise. Which was kind of interesting. I think the pandemic of maybe sitting at home had the adverse effect. That was kind of interesting to me. You find I posted that interesting? this poll at the very beginning of the pandemic. I was curious like what course Americans would find themselves on. Are they gonna be fatter or skinnier after this pandemic? And I there, it was 50-50, honestly, with, with where people were at. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, business development. Hmm. Did you find that most people found it a good year, that most people found it a bad year, or that it was a mixed bag? I, so I think this is going to be like self-selection bias, if that's a thing, because like the people I talk to most frequently have been crushing it. So that's what's fresh in my mind. Uh, but I'm sure there's a big swath of people that did not find this a particularly fertile times for prospecting. It was a mixed bag. You're right. Yeah. There were definitely teams that have cleaned up because it was that catalyst for change. Um, but there were also those that that struggled to generate and have meetings and new business. So that was uh, a mixed bag. But it's, I think the, the differentiator is the people that had the marketing infrastructure before uh, versus people that just kind of noodle around with different ideas. I, I think that was one of the bigger correlations of success. Like, I mean, one lady that I've talked to has raised like 40, 50 million by really doing nothing differently, except she's just getting all these referrals from the infrastructure she already had because money was in motion. People were, were nervous. Yeah, she's really right. good. So, uh, but people that didn't have that infrastructure or they just, you know, kind of limp into various marketing strategies, I think found materially less success. 
Yeah. And that's how I felt about my own business, honestly. I felt very fortunate that I've been doing this for a long time because just going deep with the, the community of people that we operate with, I think yeah. that's what I It's easier to go deeper than versus wider from that's a wholesaling right. perspective in 2020. That's right. Okay, good. So I'll, I'll leave with two things and then I'll let you introduce Ben. The first thing being what I saw some of the top teams did. So these are the teams that were like kind of crushing it and had a really, really good year. There were three things that jumped out to me. The first was they use this as an opportunity to solidify and optimize whatever word you want to use their processes. So there were folks that like, Hey, you know, Oh, let's string this together until we're back in the office. But there were other teams that said, you know, let's think through our onboarding process or our operational processes, anything like the processing paperwork or setting up client meetings or uh, client service. It was like, hey, how do we, we don't have what we normally do. So now we have this technology, how do we actually make this work? And I think it wasn't, I mean, a lot of that was the utilization of technology, sure. But I think also it was, hey, how do we, let's rethink this and make it better. Well, as a process guy, I'm sure that warms your your heart. Oh huh? my God. I'm like, I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like excited over here. The second thing that is they use it as a catalyst for business development, which we just mentioned. And the third, and this is going to lead into our episode, is there was a lot of folks that felt good about you know the behavioral coaching that they did during the time when the market was crashing. And I saw a lot of people mention like, hey, I went into the full toolkit to help people manage through. And because things came back so quickly and so robustly, if you did that right, um, you felt pretty good. And great training environment for, for that right? too. Exactly. Because no one knew the snapback was going to happen so quickly. But if you can have those good behavioral conversations on the way down, but then in a month or two, you know, just happened right away. It. Yeah. It yeah. wasn't, I mean, 0809 took a lot longer, right? Oh, it, that's it, right. It, it causes you to stick to your guns a, a, a lot more firmly. That's so right. um, yeah, that, that's interesting. Yeah. And, and I'll just conclude with this. One of the things that we did with the paper is we had 10 conclusions and recommendations, and I'll read just two at random. Spend time with your team reflecting and discussing how to work better together in remote environments. Things like virtual scheduled huddles can improve this dynamic. What else can you do? So this gets into the part of like, how do you work well together? Build exercise into your schedule. Time block. No excuses. I won't read Why them all. Why are you pointing at me when you say that? I, I was, I was <laughs> staring at you. Uh, but we've got 10, I think, really good recommendations. That was a fun study. Thank you, everyone who participated. Uh, we're going to do a lot more of that. And if you didn't participate and you have some insight, I mean, we're still open for feedback. So reach out to us. Let let us know what is working, what's not working. Just shoot us an email, the whole truth at touchstonefunds.com. But it, it was fun. I'm glad this was your idea. I'll give you credit for it. But it was a really great chance for both of us to engage with folks. So I had fun with it. Well, I mean, listen, I'm 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 into this community thing. That's you know, my one of my resolutions for 21 is just to increase the engagement to build that community because you all are going to benefit from the, from interacting with each other as much or more than working with us. So I, I really want to create that type of environment. And I sort of feel like the people that are engaged with this podcast really buy into that notion. Yeah. So we're going to have again for you um, our, our very own little wonderkind, Mr. Ben Algy. One episode that we had earlier in the year was with a guy named Dr. Daniel Crosby, who talked about behavioral finance. So what we wanted to do is put some legs on that and make it a little bit more applicable. So um, Ben has been working internally to develop some content around that, some ideas. Yeah. People love that Crosby episode. Love they it. Really I do, do too. If you haven't heard that, go back and listen to it. I, I, I don't look at the metrics closely, but the last time I did, I think that was our most popular episode. Uh, so we'll be right back with Ben Algie. This is The Whole Truth. Stick with us. Uh, we've got Ben back, Kurt. Ben came back. He's back. <laughs> Happy to be back, guys. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Uh, how'd you like the first time? Let's talk about this. I know you, you showed up here, so you must not have been too bad for you, but the feedback we got were, was pretty amazing on that last episode, the Challenger Sale episode. You oh, did. it was a blast. I had, I had a ton of fun doing it, and uh, the response I got uh, from those that listened was very positive, too. And uh, I feel like you know I've I've done some things in my life that I've been proud of, I'm not sure my parents have been pr more proud of anything else that I've ever done than when they saw my name on a podcast. They couldn't believe it. Is they that were, right? They were so proud. And so thanks for having me back. You've, uh, you've, I'm sure you've made my parents' day. I think it, it's always been pretty cool for me that 
I can search Spotify and find myself. Sure. How did they find it? Is just the email you sent out to them or how did they find the show? So I just sent them a link. Uh, I'd shared it on LinkedIn and sent it to them thinking yeah. that they would just see the title and say, oh, that's nice. And about, an, I don't know, the, the episode was about 40 minutes long. About 42 minutes later, I got a call from them. Just so excited. They had listened to the whole thing. They love the Challenger sale, love the podcast. So you've got two new subscribers in Toledo, Ohio uh, with my parents as of a few weeks ago. What loving, supporting parents you have. They are. They're very excited. And today's actually my dad's 65th birthday. So it's a, a, oh, a shout birthday out to present him. Happy to birthday. of a second, second podcast episode. So I appreciate you guys having me back on. And Ben, you're also our first recurring guest. First recurring guest on the show. That's right. Really? What an honor. What an honor. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Here, here's the big question. Did Caroline listen to she it? She did. She did. And uh, okay. we have two uh, two young children, one, one only six months old, the other one's two and a half. Uh, and he thinks it's incredible that that daddy's voice is on the radio. He can't can't believe it. So they'll be <laughs> wow. driving to school and they'll replay the episode of the podcast just to, just to hear dad's voice. Oh, is that why the numbers are so good? That's right. A lot of listens like, out of Cincinnati. Uh, a kindergarten That's class right. or something. Yeah, I, I think Becky listens. She's always listening to Howard Stern. I don't hear my podcast too too often from her, uh, but I think she listens. I hope we had this. Uh, we had the internals on, which will be released before before uh, this episode comes out. And uh, what Kurt and I learned is that the internals really don't listen to our <laughs> show. I can say I'm a proud listener of every every episode thus far. And so uh, you guys are doing a nice job. Awesome. It's uh, it's it's it's. Getting better and better too. Yes, outside of that one episode of the Challenger Sale where you slipped up with the guest, it's been uh, it's been pretty good yeah. elsewhere. We appreciate it. Thanks for coming back. Uh, what the episode today is going to be about is behavioral finance. So think, you know, if you haven't listened to the Daniel Crosby episode, go back and listen to that for sure. And by the way, go back and listen to the Challenger Sale with Ben Algie if you haven't heard that as well. But basically. You know, things on this show are going to build, you know, there'll be topics that'll come up that will go and want to take the next step on and research. And that's what happened with the Crosby episode. And um, I knew that that was, a, you know, an area that Ben was really interested in as well. So we just kind of teamed up and did some work on it on behalf of the enterprise. I kind of volunteered Ben. He didn't realize I was volunteering him, but I did. You want to tell that story, Ben, of how I just said Ben's going to do this with That's me? That's exactly what happened. That's uh, end of story. I got an email one day that Steve said, you guys are working on this. Let us know when you're done. And uh, a third job fell into my lap. There you go. So Ben and I um, spent some time researching the topic. You know, we, we came at it to answer two particular questions. The first is end clients. So clients of financial professionals, what do they really need to know? What can we give them that would allow them to be better investors and clients, et cetera? And the other thing was, you know, how can financial professionals integrate these concepts into their business? Really like have that become a part of what they do. So what are we solving for here? Yeah, I think the origins can can go back to um, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, who were two Israeli uh, psychologists that were studying how people make decisions uh, for the Israeli army. Like, you know, who makes a good fi fighter pilot? Why do people make poor decisions in different conditions? Michael Lewis wrote an incredible book about that you should read. And you could also read direct research from uh, from Kahneman, which uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. But um, how it evolved in our industry is essentially – from an academic perspective, there were a lot of uh, assumptions in the models of how things worked. So think back to the 70s, the efficient market hypothesis, and that was a way to, to explain uh, financial markets. And um, it, was, it was beautiful in its simplicity, simplicity, but it made a lot of assumptions. For example, one of the assumptions it made is people are rational agents. Kurt, you ever heard that term, rational agents? People always make the ideal decision by risk and reward. And you heard uh, uh, Crosby, Dr. Crosby talk about this on our podcast. Like That's just not how people are. And so that's where behavioral finance came in. It came in and said, okay, we know these models, they're nice looking, but that's not how people behave. And so, so then- um, you know, there was a few different people that accredited to bring it into our industry, but it really came from that original research. Hopefully that was a decent, if not long-winded introduction, but maybe um, 
Maybe a good place to start then, Ben, is talk about, you know, there's a couple of types of biases. What are those two types? So primarily, uh, two types that they talk about are cognitive biases and emotional biases. And so the difference is cognitive is a an error in reasoning or faulty reasoning. You're thinking through a problem incorrectly. Uh, whereas emotional biases is more of a faulty impulse or faulty reaction to a problem that, that arises. So can you give ex- examples of those, preferably ones that revolve around the casino? <laughs> That's right. The gambler's fallacy we've all heard quite a bit of, sure. And uh, so from a, from a cognitive perspective, uh, think about things like the confirmation bias, where we look for information that we already know to be true or already believe in, and we put more weight on that, uh, as opposed to an emotional bias where things like loss aversion. I hold a stock that is down. I don't want to sell it because that my reaction is realizing a loss is a bad thing. And so both really look at not necessarily the information we're given, but how we apply that information. And there's a, there's a great anecdote. I first heard this uh, from a speech by uh, Daniel Siegel. He, he did it back in 2017. If you Google him, you can, you can find this. But it's, the, it's called the bullet hole misconception. There's a story from back in World War II where the, the Allied troops were getting airplanes shot down left and right in these bombing runs. And so they conducted a study to say, why is this happening? How can we retrofit these planes uh, to, to better withstand uh, you know, the war? And so they mapped out an airplane with all the bullet holes they found from the planes that came back. What they found is it centered around the wings and the tail. And so they said, okay, we need to go in and uh, reinforce the wings and the tail. Um, but there's a big problem in that. They were only looking at the planes that came back. And so the wings and the tail were actually right. not the areas to reinforce. It was everything that wasn't showing up was the actual problem. Oftentimes, especially in our industry and financial services, uh, we have countless amounts of data. It's not a lack of information. It's how we interpret that data and how we apply that data, which behavioral finance gets right into the heart of why I think it's such an interesting topic. So so of the two, of the cognitive and the emotional, which, which is the hardest one to overcome? So the emotional proves to be a lot harder to overcome uh, because it's a reaction, uh, not an error in terms of how you're analyzing. And so I can explain to you things like recency bias, that you're giving more weight to that data, analyze that data differently, and you can work around that. Your emotional response is much harder to correct because it stems from an emotional predisposition and not the way you're thinking about a problem. But you still, you know, financial professionals, you can address both of them. It's just fair to know that emotional is, is much harder to deal Certainly. with. Certainly. And, and awareness is the, is the first step. Being aware that these biases exist gives you a huge leg up. Versus just operating blindly and having the biases that we all have, but not being aware and not trying to to adapt to them. Excellent. So we've got we've got these cognitive errors, we've got these uh, emotional errors. We're going to move into you know how financial professionals can think about this. I do want to bring up one particular concept of of why these biases exist to begin with. There are two systems in our decision making, and this comes from Thinking Fast and Slow by Kahneman. You have system one, which is fast, immediate, effortless. When you get stimuli that comes to you, it's that immediate response. It's that immediate decision. Um, system two is when you actually take time to think about something and you say, hold on, let me put some mental energy towards that. And a lot of these biases come out of system one, our immediate responses. Now, system one is not a bad thing. Like From an evolutionary perspective, we really needed to have the ability to make quick decision making. You know, there, there's an example that Crosby used in his book where if you're on the plains in the savannah and you see some rustling, your immediate response is get out of there because that may be a line. You got to get out of here. But the key is that that those immediate responses cause us to make errors. So Ben, now let's move into what we see from financial professionals. Ben has interacted with thousands of financial professionals. So what do you specifically see here? So a couple areas we can talk about here. We've got a lot of experience in the practice management side, certainly, but starting the investment side. Um, Study after study, you can look at at Dalbar, Morningstar, a number of different ones out there show that investor returns, the, the returns people actually experience trail total returns, the returns of the investment, uh, by a wide margin, uh, anywhere from you know, 25 to 50 basis points annually up to two, three, 400 basis points annually, depending on the study and the time frame. Uh, so why is that? The answer is the behavioral side. 
It's the buying high and selling low. It's the uh, moving with the masses. So depending on you know, the, the, the research you look at, there's anywhere from 1% to 4% to be gained just by correcting these biases in our investing life. And so a huge gap. That's what recognizing this is actually worth to you. On the practice management side, you know, there's the, uh, one of the biases that uh, is, is evident there's a fallacy of choice. Uh, we look at our clients and they have 20, 30, 40,000 mutual funds and ETFs to choose from. Uh, not, not great in terms of narrowing down your focus. Uh, the, the fallacy of choice talks about we think that having more choices is a benefit and the more choices, the better. But in actuality, there becomes a point of diminishing returns where you're actually worse off for the more, cho- more choices you have. The financial professionals say, well, I'd narrow that down. But we've worked with 2,000 teams and the average team has over 350 mutual funds and ETFs. So the fallacy of choice still plays in the practice itself. And so what we work with teams to do is narrow that focus down to a single or maybe two or three investments per, per space to eliminate that fallacy of choice, focus our efforts, and, and try to capture some of the risk associated with all those one-off investments. I remember seeing something in the, in the book Nudge that talks about in the ERISA space where, where folks are constructing their ERISA plans. You know, the, just the difference between opt-in and opt-out systems for those plans yields completely divergent responses for the for the participants in those plans. Yeah, it's it's really the it's the intersection of psychology with economics. And uh, to Steve's point earlier on the the rational being, I remember my intro to econ classes thinking that's that's not real. Like that that how do you how do you see that in the real world? And the truth is when you work with, you know, a large population that becomes more and more realistic. But there's still this, you know, irregular irregularities that exist because of the lack of rationality in the individual where psychology plays a role. And so the intersection of those two is so much more useful to me because it's what you see in the real world and not some economic theory that may or may may or may not be applicable. Yeah. So we got fallacy of choice. There's probably a lot you could do, but anything else you'd bring up in terms of what you see from financial professionals? The other one we see uh, a great deal is the recency bias. You know, Morningstar is fantastic for the amount of data that it provides. And so the focus is now on star ratings, which don't get me wrong, can be directionally informative, but have little to no impact on future performance. And so we've gotten into this habit of looking at recent returns and giving them outsized weight uh, when in actuality, there's so many other things outside of what you've done the last five years that are all the more impactful uh, to, to future outperformance. Those are two two really good examples, Ben. There's a lot more that we have. If, if you want to kind of learn some of the other things we've learned from our studies with financial professionals, reach out to us, the whole truth at touchstonefunds.com, and we're happy to kind of walk through the, the exhaustive list of what we see. So I want to get aside to something that we talked about already with, uh, with Dr. Crosby, and that's Rules-based investment, R- RBI, because that it strikes to me as as one of yeah. the most applicable things for both private financial professionals and their clients. I kind of comb through all of Crosby's books. What are the actual solutions? And this is one of the things that he brought up, which is RBI or rules-based investing. He has four C's for how you can integrate these principles into investing. First is consistency. The second is clarity. The third is courageousness. And the fourth is conviction. So consistency, that's straightforward. Don't just walk in on a Tuesday and decide to tinker with portfolios. You know, that's not to say that you can't trigger looking at portfolios based on what's happening in the environment, but have some consistency in terms of what you're making changes. Clarity. He writes, prioritize evidence-based factors, ignore frightening but unlikely. So the first part of evidence-based factors There's no shortage of opinions out there in terms of market direction, and but but focusing on things that actually are grounded in evidence um, is really important. Frightening but unlikely is you know spending way too much time thinking about that left tail risk. You know, it's not to say you shouldn't prepare for the worst, but but don't you know let fear paralyze you. The third is courageousness. I'm I'm going to open this up to you guys right now after I describe it because this is a hard one right now. He puts automate contrarianism. That's pretty straightforward. Um, you know, you rebalance, 
if one asset class has gone too far, you know, you kind of pull back. You want to automate that because that's going to be a hard thing to do in real time. And, you know, as we sit here at the end of 2020, you know, there's a part of the market that's just been better than every other part of the market. And had you rebalanced out of it, you know, you'd, you'd be losing. So so I guess I'll pose this to both, to either of you guys. Like, how do you think about contrarianism right now? Well, I, th- I think consistency and courageousness go hand in hand, right? If you're describing what a consistent process looks like, the, the courage is actually sticking with that despite market conditions. So I'm, I personally am a big fan of automation. I, I automate as much of my investing as possible, but you know, you, it doesn't hurt to have that little play money that you can, that that's not consistent and that, that is not courageous and it's more tapping into the emotional biases. But, um, to, to me, it doesn't make sense to build the system if you don't use the system. That's where the courage comes in because it feels like the wrong decision. It, it's the, the exact opposite of the emotion you want to be experiencing when you're either putting dollars to work or maybe not putting dollars to work. I think what, what you're describing, Kurt, is, is the actual – you're feeling that bias in play that you're, that you're trying to disrupt with the uh, system you put in. There's, there's very few uni- universal truths in our industry. And so when everybody believes something is – probably the time they need to be moving away from that the most. And so putting those systems in place that, that Steve's talking about is what allows us to counteract the bias that's in our heads of recency, that we've seen this happen. It feels right. Everybody's saying with it, we're going with the, the herd. Uh, it forces us to to counteract our own biases. And yes, in the short term uh, and in any you know one-off situation, you could be proven wrong. But more often than not, uh, you're going to be better off uh, doing that than you are just going with the herd. There's something to be said about momentum and catalysts for this stuff, but uh, nevertheless, uh, I think I think that the, it, it holds that you should you should do um, you know contrarianism. People assume what we're talking about is wholly in or wholly out. I think it's obvious that that's not what we're talking about, right? You're, you're trimming, but I think in, anyone that I've helped develop an IPS with, you're range bound, right? So it's not even if you have a process in which you're rebalancing once a year, if you're at the upper end of the, of the range or outside of the range, you can go back to that upper band of the range, right? So you're, you're making small in- incremental changes. But I just go back to my previous point. If if you're not going to stick with the system, why build the system, right? But if you have an IPS, just stick with the IPS because those are laborious documents to put together, but use the dang thing. Yeah, that's 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 a really, really good point. So again, consistency, clarity, courageousness. Um, and then the last thing is conviction. You know, I, I'll tell you something. I'm curious if you guys see the same thing about conviction. Diversification, um, we know we need it. Man, is it overdone in our business. We see it all the time. And it's it, diversification is really important. And you, you, you want to diversify away as much of that unsystematic risk as you can. But that said, you very quickly become the market if there's over-diversification. We don't need 300 holdings in a portfolio. How else can financial professionals incorporate b- behavioral finance? I think we've got a, a couple of good ideas, talk some big picture, but let's let's continue to be specific. Yeah. So we just talked about defining an investment process that incorporates behavioral finance. We talk about rules-based investing. Acknowledge that this is something that should be part of your investment process. Um, the second thing is incorporating behavioral finance in your value proposition making this a part of your value and what you communicate to end clients. Dr. Crosby brought up the concept of behavioral alpha. You know, what is the excess wealth that you as a financial professional can can deliver just from the advice you give? That's that's a, it's a really profound thing. Um, incorporating behavioral finance in your client reviews. You know, you have the structure for how you go through um, your reviews with clients. In, bring that in there. We can help you do that. That should be something that you should that you should incorporate. And the last two I would say is um, we've talked in the past about PAR, which is our practice analysis review. There's a lot of stuff we can uncover around uh, about your business from the behavioral side through PAR. Some of the things that Ben's talking about, we can identify it for you. And then the last thing that we listed was, was having client events. So just general education, you know, having a series of things that you can work through, um, and making this topic something you're talking about all the time. So if, if that's kind of how I would sum up how financial professionals can can bring this all together. So Ben, maybe let's transition away from financial professionals um, and we'll conclude with 
how end clients should think about this. So there was a concept that we came across that it talked about processing of information and media. It's getting harder and harder today to maintain a holistic view of any problem because of the way we consume media. It used to be we all sat around and watched the same evening news and we all got different viewpoints and then you interpreted what you what you thought of those viewpoints. Now think about consuming media on Twitter. I have my Twitter feed and I go there for news often. How easy is it now if I get a news feed that I don't like or doesn't fit my confirmation bias to just block or unfollow? And all of a sudden I've tailored a message to only hear the information that I want to hear. When I come into work every morning, I read five or six different publications because if all, all you seek out is the information you already believe to be true, you're setting yourself up for disaster on the downside. Tangential story, my we just came through this election. My wife and I do not see eye to eye politically whatsoever, uh, but we have a rule in our house that, that allows us to coexist. And it said, if you can't unemotionally explain the other side's viewpoint, then we can't discuss the topic. And I think Ooh, that's, that's great. equally applicable to our industry because when you think about it, if you make a trade, every trade or investment we make, somebody thinks you're an idiot because somebody's on the other side of that buying the stock you're selling or selling the stock you're buying. And so challenge yourself to unemotionally think what aligns with my viewpoint and what's the other person thinking. Yeah, and I, I think about the sensationalism. So if you turn on CNBC or Bloomberg, what, what their job is to do, and not to beat up on those things, but they amplify the emotionality of what's going on in the market. There's so many things you can get ahead of if you talk to your clients in advance about it, prepare them for it. And this is what we mean about behavioral coaching. These are the things we're going to see. Here's how you can think about it, and here's how you should react. So when that inevitably happens, you don't have to go back and, and you know kind of have that conversation while it's happening. That makes and sense. media literacy has got to be like a top, a top five conversation that financial professionals need to be having with clients because it is so pervasive. You need more tools in your tool bag now than any other time in human history. And we're we're researching actually some of this kind of how humans interact with technology for upcoming show. And one of the really big takeaways is been what you were saying is you got to have dissenting voices. You can't just create these these echo chambers of your own thoughts. You have to listen to divergent views. It's healthy. It's reasonable. All right. So Ben, maybe what we'll do is we'll, we'll conclude with some, what are some of besides, you know, media and consumption of information, are there any immediate steps that end clients can take right now? So the first one, and not to pander to our, our primary audience is work with a professional. Um, I talked about earlier, there's, you know, one to 4% in savings to be had by not falling prey to these behavioral biases. That's what financial professionals are there for. So find a professional who, as Steve mentioned, has this in their value proposition that they consider these elements and, and bake it in. Um, a couple others. One, be a student of the game. It's so easy to watch CNBC and feel like, you know, the sky is falling or the sky will never fall based on what we're seeing that day. Understand that markets ebb and flow and growth comes in and out of favor and stocks go up and down and small caps rally. And then perhaps the, the most important, the simplest and the one I like the most is be comfortable just saying, I don't know. Uh, it's so rarely used. It's, it's you watch, you know, any sort of news or entertainment news, you call it. Nobody ever says, I don't know. They always have the strongest opinion and they're banging their fists one way or another. Um, I was lucky enough to, to meet Warren Buffett back when I was doing my MBA. And the one thing I remember him saying when he was speaking to our group was his favorite part of investing is that you can sit and watch 99 perfect pitches go by and you only got to swing at the one you know is perfect. And so the ability to, and comfort to say, I don't know, the smartest people in the room are the ones who say, I don't know. And oftentimes those that have the loudest, loudest opinions are those that are compensated for something else. And so um, if you're comfortable saying that, you're, you're ahead of the game. Thanks, Ben, for going through all that. There was a lot there, but um, hopefully you left with a little bit more of a foundation for, for where this concept um, came from, where it's going, how you can integrate it in your practice, and how you can coach and teach your, your clients about it. If you're wanting to learn more, you hear this, you're like, oh, that's interesting. Reach out to us and we'll help you with it. So we're going to come back with Ben in a moment. This is The Whole Truth. Stick with us. So welcome back. We're still here with Ben. And if you remember back to our episode talking about the Challenger sale, we talked a little bit about some of the work that Ben has done with niche 
markets, um, developing your niche market and then figuring out marketing plans to go after said niche. And yes, it's niche, Steve, not niche. Um, but I have a general I don't think that's true. marketing question that you think of lawyers, you think of real estate agents, a lot of different professionals use like billboards and different types of marketing. Why don't wealth managers use those types of marketing avenues? Interesting question. I think- I think I've seen it a couple of times. I don't think the financial professionals- want a majority of the people driving on the highway as clients. They want a select subset of those cl- those people. I think a lot more people buy homes and need a real estate agent than have the investable assets for a top-level financial advisor. And so maybe it's just the amount of targeting that needs to be done. But yeah, to your point, I don't think I've ever seen a wealth manager on a billboard, but uh, I could be wrong. I mean, if your niche was surgeons, why not have a billboard outside the hospital. I don't know. There's got to be a scenario where it makes sense. It just surprises me that I've never seen it. I think Kurt's starting a business as we're talking right now. He <laughs> wants to be billboards he's for- got, He's got eight you know? billboards for sale down in Atlanta. He's trying to get some <laughs> Yeah. Like, uh, no, you know what I've thought about? It's a good idea with the passion and uh, the passion. It's like it's, something's happening there, you know? No. I, there, do you remember the movie, I Love You, Man? Uh, Paul Rudd- um, What's the guy's the other guy's name? I'm, I'm horrible with actor names, but like uh, he actually takes his own money, but he borrows it and he posts a bunch of billboards. He's a real estate agent and he gets all this new business and it's this great thing. It's like, oh, why don't why don't financial professionals do that? Yeah. But anyway, so we, we started talking w- about niche marketing with Ben on the last episode. So we just wanted to kind of throw out a few different ideas of uh, questions that people should be asking when they're developing their niche, um, things to work through. We brought two things each that we should know about your niche. Now, we'll, we'll judge each other. The first one that I think is pretty straightforward is what organizations, clubs, trade associations support that niche? So if you are going after a surgeon, what trade associations does that surgeon go to? Um, what clubs, et cetera. So the supporting groups for that niche. Hmm. Yay or nay? Very yay. Absolutely. Very, yeah. very yay. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I got yay, to go yay. first. It's be, if I screwed that up, like, you know, that's an easy one. Oh, well, when, when um, we get to mine, you will have chance to, to, to throw pitches at each other. So don't, don't worry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't know you wanted a response there. I could have come better than yay, yay. But I, I, yes, that's a very important component to have uh, have in place. Excellent. Okay. Uh, Kurt, you, you want to go next? So uh, idea number one is that if you have a niche in a particular company, you need to have some sort of SWOT analysis on that company. You've got to speak to the problems that folks that do work or have worked or will work for this company deal with. Um, it, it was an idea that, that came out of a pr- our, our previous conversation that, you know, you need to know problems before your clients know that they have problems and be able to identify those. So uh, just understanding on kind of a superficial SWAT level, uh, what the business challenges that these folks are going through might, might be practical. So Kurt, I'll, I'll piggyback on that because mine is understanding the primary professional risk associated with your niche. And I think that's getting to what you're talking about as well with the SWAT. Uh, so if we take the extreme example, uh, let's say you are have a niche of coal miners, there's probably some life insurance needs associated with coal miners that you and I don't have in our day-to-day job. Athletes, you talk about the the, the length of time an athlete actually earns money, um, depending on which which you know uh, professional league they're in, it's it's pretty short. Uh, so those those are the obvious ones, but. Take for existence what we do. Uh, if someone was focused on individuals who work in the financial services industry, we have an inherent risk that our compensation is very directly tied to the financial markets. That when there's a significant market pullback, our income is probably pulling back and our job security is probably pulling back as well. If you can identify that problem and let clients know before that happens that you're taking into account in terms of, well, you would be a 60-40 portfolio because of this overweight equities in your income, we're going to alter that. That's something most clients haven't thought of. Understanding what those professional risks are associated with that job uh, is critical in that next step of thinking beyond just, I go after doctors. 
So my other thought is you've got to be well-informed and well-connected to the HR department. If you can somehow get a glimpse into their hiring practices, their firing practices, when there's big substantial employment shifts going on with the company and you're there providing educational resources, providing service to those folks, I, I just think that that's a if, – if the ERISA employment kind of pre-retiree segment is what you're going after, which most by financial professionals it is – beefing up your HR Rolodex might be a good idea. Kurt, you and I are on a same wa- the same wavelength today because uh, my next point piggybacks beautifully on that, uh, which is having a primary contact for your niche to go to when it comes to things like benefits. And it's not having a phone number they can call. It is having an individual they can talk to that you have communicated with that you are pointing your clients in that direction. So if your niche is a individual company, it's very easy. It's somebody within HR. But Everybody has a phone number they can go to. Not everybody has a financial professional telling them, when you have this question, go to this individual. They'll get an answer for you. The best solution is you have the answer. The second best solution is you have the person that can get them that answer. Yeah, man, I'm getting all kinds of ideas that are jumping in my head based on this conversation. I know we're only supposed to do two apiece, but you guys are just so so uh, so darn thoughtful. <laughs> Let me share a couple I- things that are popping in my mind. One is solutions you know they need outside of you. So you want to handle their financial well-being, but what other types of solutions and, and resources do, do people need that are in that particular industry? So I had a, a client of mine who's a member of our community that was working with people that were in you know an elderly market, and he had things like all kinds of different medical referrals, like chiropractic and massage and all these different things that if they were looking for someone, they didn't even have to have to think about it. He's like, hey, this one is completely vetted. So I think that could be kind of an interesting thing is to build out that service infrastructure. Is that reasonable? Yeah. The more people you can help connect clients with, uh, you just, you're more embedded in their lives. That's a good thing. Yeah, there's there's that concept uh, in in the supernova model of the enthusiastically enth- endorsed referrals. I think guess what you're looking at is I enthusiastically endorse these individuals for their services outside of what I provide. The broader that can be, and now to your point, Steve, the great idea that the more specific it can be to that niche, all the more relevant you become to every aspect of their lives, not just their financial lives. Well, I've got I've got two more. Can I go? Can I throw my other two based on our conversation? Sure. What do they actually want to achieve? You know, we talked about problems, but let's let's take it back from our business. We're working with financial professionals who want to manage money of end clients. And a lot of the things that we do, including this podcast, is helping them with that, knowing what they want to achieve. There's probably some opportunity in niches to understand what they are trying to achieve and help them with that. Is that reasonable? It is. And I, you know, it... it Piggybacks on a concept that I'm actually stealing from your podcast previously, when I think it was actually when Dr. Crosby was on the podcast, he talked about the concept of unfair advantages and how they exist often. It's not a bad thing. Take advantage of it. What unfair advantages does your niche have? Think about professors at a university. Unfair advantage that their kids get to go to school for free. What does that free up in the rest of their financial lives? Uh, I bet if we think about it, those exist more broadly than we think. Uh, isolate those unfair advantages or benefits uh, as opposed to the risks, and really isolate those and, and approach them with what opportunities that provides them could be really compelling stuff. I think one thing we haven't talked about yet is who do you actually want to know? Get into the pipeline. Fill out a list of people that you want to meet. Where can that list come from? Well, it could come from board of directors of trade associations. It could come from LinkedIn. But actually getting a sense of who you'd like to meet, um, that's probably a pretty good thing to have on hand in your in your, you know, pipeline for when you're interacting with people throughout the niche, right? Absolutely. You got to be deliberate about it. Too much of what we try to do is uh, by way of whim and hoping that more come across. I have a lot of doctors in my practice. I hope I get more. Uh, No, be deliberate. Uh, Go out there and actively recruit the type of people that you want to be a part of your practice because of that niche and use the niche to your advantage and you're going to be more successful. Love it. Excellent. Well, I think the the key point here is that – you know, you want to go after a niche, start to build the capabilities, you know, the differentiation, all that um, to actually go after it and be purposeful about it. I like that word that Ben just used. We're going to we're going to transition uh, to the Costanza Corner. This is the whole truth. Stick with us. 
And welcome back, everybody, to The Whole Truth. This is our Costanza Corner. Kurt, you are up. I won't belabor this too much, but it seems like in times of stress, there, there's two paths you can take. You can take the, I'm just going to protect me and mine and get get mine. And some people default to, well, crap, this is really serious and we all need to come together to solve these problems. I was very encouraged by reading an article about a guy in India who who works in HR, ironically enough, who has spent his $75,000 of life savings to create a rice ATM for his community. A rice ATM. Yes. So so he's he's cashed in his life savings and bought rice, and he just lets people line up and gives them portions of rice so that they can stay fed because hunger is a big problem in this area. And so he's cashed his own chips to help his own community and just wow. give out rice to make sure people have the calories they need to, to survive, which uh, is in India, and that's a problem there. But I read recently that there's 5 million people that are struggling with hunger in our country since the pandemic. So plenty of opportunities for us to increase what we're, how we're helping our local communities as well. What can you say? How wonderful is that guy? You know, karma, man. Life karma. savings. Yeah. Yeah. There's great images just with him in front of like gigantic trucks of rice and there's just the lines circling, circling the whole block. He's a hero. Yeah. He's a hero. Awesome. Well, that certainly is uplifting. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time. You can find The Whole Truth and subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the show. And for more episodes of The Whole Truth, go to www.touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. That's touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth, all one word.